And so we're starting today a series in the Gospel of Luke. And our sermon text this afternoon is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, basically an introduction to the Gospel. Before we read those words, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we sit now under your word to hear from your word, Father, we pray that you would bless the Holy Scriptures to us, that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that understand and obey. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Just to repeat that, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So Luke, the beloved physician, long-time companion of the Apostle Paul, who often travelled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys and spent time with Paul in prison. Paul at one point writes, everyone else is gone and only Luke remains with me. That which we have just read is one long introductory sentence and according to the scholars that I've studied or that I've read, they tell us that it's a very high order of Greek. It's written in a very formal tone. It's written very well. He doesn't use the same type of language from there on in. Once he gets into the body of the gospel, he speaks in a far more common way, but introducing himself and particularly in making introduction to Theophilus, he writes very carefully. He calls Theophilus most excellent, probably indicates that Theophilus is a person of some note. When, when the Apostle Paul was speaking, for example, to the governor Festus, he called him most excellent, most excellent, a term of respect, recognising that someone holds a particular office and is worthy on that account alone of being treated with some respect. Luke's gospel is the longest of the gospels in terms of words. We haven't divided it up into the most chapters, but in terms of the amount of words expended, it's the longest of the gospels. It contains on its own. Now, what I mean by on its own is all gospels contain a whole lot of common information. But Luke's gospel on its own contains more um, of its own information than any other gospel. There are things that you find in the Gospel of Luke that you don't find recorded in the other gospels. For example, the parable of the prodigal son is brought to us only in the Gospel of Luke. It's the longest, it has the most words, it has the most exclusive or individual content. Not that that in a way means anything. This is the word of God. The gospel is in the word of God. It's not saying that anything recorded by Luke is less reliable because it's only been recorded by Luke. Just making the point that Luke has more of its own individual content held within it. If Luke had an aim, I think we would find his aim to be towards the end of his gospel if you just want to flick forward. 
Looking in Luke chapter 24 and at verse 13, we see the story of that which happened on the road to Emmaus or Emmaus. That very day, looking from verse 13, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Whilst they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. We won't keep reading, but turn over, or for me, I turn over a page. Jump forward to verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he vanished from their sight. Now, in a way, when we went through the Gospel of John, if you remember, I said it was, it was the aim of John that we end up like Thomas, on our knees in front of Jesus saying, my Lord and my God. Well, Luke has a similar aim. He's not afraid of stating his purpose. His purpose is that in considering the things that have been written, Jesus would draw near to us. And though we may well be unaware that he is with us, we are to understand that indeed he is. Turning back to Luke chapter 1, Luke wants us to have certainty, just looking at verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. His hope is that as we study his gospel, we will be built up in certainty, in assurance that we will become um, less likely to be altered, to be changed by the things of the world, less likely to be driven astray by lies, false teachings and other things. He wants us to love Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is somebody who can be approached by sinners. He's somebody who constantly comes into the approach of out, sorry, comes into the presence of outcasts and rejects. Luke wants us to remember that, that we can come close to God through Jesus, that we can have close personal fellowship with Jesus, that we can, as it were, have our meals in the presence of of Jesus. Let's have a look at the text, starting at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Well, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It would appear that Luke is saying many have attempted to put these things into writing. It's commonly believed that Matthew and Mark were already in existence as Luke sat down to write. I don't think Luke is necessarily um, casting aspersions on the others that have written, but I think he's saying that um, these things need to be thought about. These things need to be remembered. You need some kind of official record of the things that God has done among us. I want you to look particularly at the word accomplished, the things that have been accomplished among us, finished, done, completed, Luke has a message of something that has been fulfilled. Something has been done, completed. Verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. 
Look at that carefully. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He's saying something here. Those who were eyewitnesses to the works and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and all that he did in the lead up to it. He's not going to write a gospel that is in disagreement with those who were eyewitnesses. He's compiling a narrative just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Those things, he's saying, I am, I am compiling, as it were, the story of that which happened, of that which has been accomplished, according to those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's, he's, he's not saying he's bringing anything to the gospel that the apostles have not taught. He's not saying he's got new material that no one else has. He's saying, I am compiling material that comes from eyewitnesses. It seemed good to me also, verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. The, The workings of God's Holy Spirit here. It seemed good to me. I wonder how long he thought about this. I wonder how long this turned over in his mind. I can write. I'm well studied. I'm an eyewitness to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. I've been in close personal contact with many, many, many people who were themselves eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. I know much. I have abilities. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely. You know, a burden, a weight, a thought. I ought to do this. I could do this. I'm qualified to do this. I'm an educated man. This needs to be done. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely, to write an orderly account Now, when he says orderly, he doesn't necessarily mean orderly in in a chronological manner. He's actually arranged things, not necessarily chronologically. The chapter which includes the the, the parable of the prodigal son also includes the story of the widow seeking for the coin or the housewife, I should say, seeking for the lost coin. Something lost being found. He's arranged things to give us a gospel, to give us a story that will lead us to Jesus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Just because he deliberately, thoughtfully, purposefully wrote his gospel with the intention that his gospel be a religious document leading people to Jesus doesn't mean that it wasn't accurate. Doesn't mean that it wasn't true. He had a plan. He had a desire. This was not auto-writing. This, you know, this was not some kind of occultic trance where he just closed his eyes, moved his hands, and when he was finished, at the end of it, there was his gospel. He thoughtfully, deliberately, taking the words of eyewitnesses, drew together a careful account of the life of Jesus Christ with the purpose that all who have been called to Christ would have certainty 
Certainty. Not be blown about by various winds. Certainty. By the time we get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, my friends, we should have certainty. Certainty concerning the Gospel. If we've already got it, we should have more of it. We should be stronger in our faith rather than weaker. Second Peter one twenty one tells us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, no gospel. No gospel ever came to us for no other reason than a man wanted to write a gospel. The gospel came to us because God carried them along by the power of his Holy Spirit. God uses people where they are. God uses people according to their own nature and abilities. Luke didn't cease to be Luke as he wrote the gospel. He didn't lose his personality. He didn't lose his favoured words. He didn't lose his handle on languages. God used Luke as Luke and oversaw that which Luke wrote to ensure that Luke wrote according to his will. That's basically my introduction to the gospel itself. Now I just basically want to fasten this onto a couple of different words and um, finish off with some exhortation. The first one I've already drawn attention to, in verse 1 it tells us that this has been accomplished. Something is accomplished among us. And the other points that I want to draw attention to are he has written an orderly account. The words there translated an orderly account could be translated a precise expense account, a price account of outlay, precise account of outlay, a price, a precise account of outgoing expense. Something has been accomplished and it has been accomplished at a cost. That's what Luke's here to tell us. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul tells us we were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. My friends, we have been redeemed. God, as it were, conducted a transaction through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an expense account involved in people being brought into the church. There's an expense account involved in people being saved. We were in slavery, slavery to sin. Slavery means owned. Slavery means a slave, no free will. Slavery means you don't just come and go as you please. Slavery means that your life is in the hands of your master. We were owned. And we have been bought with a price. And this has been accomplished. It has been accomplished. When we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching the message of accomplished salvation. God's people have been saved. God's people have been redeemed. God has carried out his saving work upon the earth. When Jesus died upon the cross, he said, It is finished. It is finished. Paid for. It is complete. This work is done. 
as we preach the gospel, we should be preaching the gospel that is victorious. The gospel of the king who reigns, and even as he reigns, he purchased people with his own blood. The work has been accomplished. It seems that the world has managed to beat us around so much these days that we no longer proclaim confidently. We no longer proclaim that the work has been accomplished. We're discouraged. We don't see people turning to the Lord in great numbers. We see people rejecting the word. We don't see, as it were, a harvest before our very eyes. We've lost our confidence. We're afraid to make that outright, bold gospel proclamation. But Jesus has accomplished the work that the Father came gave him to do. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's a line in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has accomplished that which the Father gave him to do. A people have been redeemed for God out from under slavery. The nature of humanity is that we are an owned creation. We've never escaped from the conditions into which we were created. We were created the image bearers of the living God, owned. We were God's people from the beginning. Adam and Eve were owned by God. He created them. Out of the dust he formed them and he breathed his life into them. We were created to serve and to worship and to obey. That which we call freedom The idea that a person can do as they please, take any choice they want, apart from external influences, is nonsense. It did not exist in the beginning, and it has never existed since. It's not a real thing. We were created a serving, worshipping creature. We were created an owned creature. A possession of God. My people, God would say, I own them. God created all and each and every person is owned by God. The desire for humanity to be something other than that which God created it to be can only lead to destruction. It can only lead to destruction. We were not created to be our own gods. We were not created to appoint our own laws. We were not created to choose, as it were, our own future. We were not created to take any of the nature of divinity upon ourselves. We were created to serve. And in our sin, we served sin. We became slaves to sin. The man who sins is a slave to his sin. And even if a sinner or even, I'm sorry, even if a slave managed to raise the price of redemption, there was never any guarantee that his master was going to accept it. He was a slave. No one had to recognise a slave as a citizen ever at any point. 
Mankind was lost. Mankind was in the mud, in the dirt. We were created out of the dirt and given life and then we covered ourselves in it through sin, through wickedness. It's amazing. Where do we put bodies? Back under the dirt. What's the picture of uncleanness? To be covered in dirt, to be covered in the mud and the muck of the world. We could not do that which God has done. We could not accomplish that which God has done through Jesus Christ our Lord. Something has been accomplished. Salvation has been accomplished. As I say, we've lost our confidence in the proclamation. We don't see the results we want to see. We're afraid of the rejection of the world. We don't proclaim this accomplished salvation with confidence, but we ought to. Remember that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In this orderly account, in this precise retelling of the cost of our purchase, we find eternal life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the one who is truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ, the the Saviour appointed by God, comes to the earth. He preaches. He teaches. He's rejected. He's falsely accused. He's crucified. He dies. He's raised on the third day. He ascends to heaven. It's accomplished. It's finished. Salvation is done, purchased, bought. No one who is to be saved will not be saved. People have been purchased. Those who have been purchased will be saved. When the gospel is preached, it's not for us to decide who hears. It's not for us to decide the results of this preaching. But understand this, in the preaching of the gospel is the calling of the lost. It must be preached and we should be proclaiming it boldly because these works have been accomplished. If God has done it, can man undo it? And the answer is no. If God has finished it, can man unfinish it? No. If salvation is a perfected, completed work of God, can we make it any less perfect? And the answer is no. We are saved to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord at great expense. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We often sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. What was the problem for humanity? Nothing, absolutely nothing that they did could draw the approval of God. Absolutely nothing that mankind could do could bring about God's proclamation of righteousness. You are righteous in my sight. You stand before me. Absolutely nothing that we could do was, as it were, good enough. Have you ever known someone, you know, I'm thinking here of a young man maybe in his teen years who's got a hard-hearted dad, 
a tough father. And everything that he does is criticised and absolutely nothing that he does is accepted. And have you seen a young man in that situation grow in bitterness, grow in hardness, throw himself more and more into foolishness and wickedness? Why? Nothing I do is good enough anyway. Why even try? God is not any, in any way a hard-hearted father. Don't, don't take my illustration the wrong way. But the general situation for humanity is that nothing that we have ever done, nothing that we ever do is good enough. We just can't achieve what we want to achieve. We can't get ourselves into heaven. That which our forefathers lost, that which Adam and Eve lost, life in the garden, in the presence of God, that's what's, that's what's locked up, as it were, in every human heart. Everyone desires once again to live that life. Everyone desires once again to live that life of eternal blessing or that life of blessing in the presence of God. Set up for enjoyment, apart from wickedness. Everyone has that longing and no one has the ability to get there. Enslaved to sin, hardening hearts. What happens when we sin, when people give up, when people surrender to their sin? Their consciences are seared. Things get worse, not better. Hearts don't become softer, they become harder. The truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. The the first punishment of sin is more sin. That's the situation that humanity was in. Man-made religions all over the world, all forms of idolatrous and foolish religions were in the end demonic. Demonic. Isn't it amazing? We live in a world at the moment that seems to be chasing after the demonic. Why? Well, they've swallowed the same lie that Eve swallowed. If you do this thing, you will have freedom. You will be like God. And so they define freedom as freedom to sin. A friend has asked me a few times in the last couple of days, how can people let this happen? How long will this go on? The answer is simple. As long as people who have hardened their hearts in sin and utterly rejected the idea that they need to bend the knee to God, have the things which dull their conscience, they'll submit to just about anything. As long as they have their drugs, as long as they have their porn, as long as they have their fornication, as long as they have their alcohol, as long as they have all of these things they turn to that distract them from reality, they will quite willingly lose everything else. You see, if these things are the things that define freedom, well, the things that you and I talk about when we say this should be a free society, free speech, the right to take choices concerning your own future, etc., etc., they don't care about them. They're not remotely interested. They want hookups, temporary hookups. They want joy. They want pleasure. Not Christian joy, sinful joy. They want the happiness of the moment. 
anything to dull the pain, anything to stop the big questions, anything to keep their head looking down. And that's freedom. So you say, how far can government go as it restricts freedom at this time? The answer is as long as the people have their drugs, whatever those drugs may be, can go as far as it likes. Years ago, Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. What does that mean, opium? It's a drug base. Religion is the drug of the masses. His complaint was that people had not united and rose up and rebelled against the wicked overlords. Why? He said, because religion lulled them off to sleep. That's why. Well, empirical results have falsified his statement. What do I mean? Well, today, opium is the opiate of the masses. What do I mean? The drugs that people use for temporary happiness and included in those drugs, I'm including fornication, sexual perversion, pornography, you name it, all of those things are all they want and they're perfectly happy with them. Opium is the opiate of the masses, apparently. Slavery, spiritual slavery, a race or a people or an ethnicity or a nation that is in spiritual slavery can only ever be governed by a form of slavery. Where have our freedoms gone? Well, our freedoms fell as the church here in Australia turned away from the true gospel and stopped preaching the truth, stopped preaching the things that have been accomplished, stopped preaching the precise expense of salvation, God's outlay. What did God lay down that man might be saved? And left people in in their sins, unwarned, untaught, unevangelized, not evangelized, not taught the true gospel. And so slavery to sin became the nature of Australian society and slavery to, slavery to government is the mirror image of that nature. So what have we got here in the gospel of Luke? This expense account of God at great price redeeming humanity and that's what we've got here, an expense account of God at great, par- at great price redeeming humanity. With his own blood, he purchased his church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. God at great price redeeming humanity. What have we got here? And the answer is we've got the complete opposite to what the world has. We've got the truth and the only truth. We've got the means of freedom and the only means of freedom. Here's the thing, if, even if we are ruled over by an enslaving government here in Australia as Christians in Australia, they cannot take this truth from us. They cannot tear it out of our hearts, as it were. They cannot destroy this certainty that we have concerning the things that we have been taught. You see, freedom, freedom is not 
the ability to do whatsoever you please. Freedom is freedom to be what God has made you to be. God has made you to be an image bearer of the living God. God has made you to be remade in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ from the time that you put your faith in him. God has made you to be a younger brother of our elder brother, Jesus. God has made us to be his people in the world. What is freedom for us? It is being and doing what God has made us to be and to do. And that's freedom. When we do what God has made us to be and to do, we do it with a clear conscience. No troubles, no regrets, none whatsoever. We know that we are not going to be accused in the presence of God for being believers in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that that which we have in Christ can never be taken from us. We have been purchased at great expense, my friends. We're not going to be cast off anytime soon. God is not going to let go of us. God is not going to, as it were, say the blood of my son is worth nothing. It's never going to happen. If Jesus has accomplished our salvation, as Luke says here, if Jesus has accomplished our salvation, then we are saved. You're here. It's 2021. And you were saved in, let's say, 33 AD. No one's absolutely 100% certain if I'm giving you the correct date there, but you know what I'm saying. It was accomplished almost 2,000 years ago. There's security there, my friends. Do you feel that you're sinning? Do you feel that you're unworthy? Do you feel that even now as a Christian, you're in the spiritual wars? Your salvation is accomplished. The purchase at great expense has been made. To Talistai, it is finished, has been written on your account in the blood of the Lamb. Finished, account paid, nothing owing, will not be made, will not be made owing, nothing owing. Purchased at great expense. These things are the certainty that Luke wants us to have. He wants us to know that we are the children of God, that our salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that these things cannot be stolen from us, that we have been purchased at great expense. Nevertheless, we have been purchased. It's accomplished, finished, done, fulfilled. All that is required has been done by Christ. He did all that God desired of him. He's the righteous one, the lamb without spot or blemish. You long for righteousness? You long for the Edenic paradise? The garden? where the fruits grow, where the tree of life is, you long to walk in the presence of God, to meet with God day by day. You long to live that life of blessedness where death and evil are not there. 
If you are in Christ, it has been accomplished. It has been accomplished. The transaction, as it were, has been made. Jesus has secured for us our salvation. We have been saved by Jesus from the judgment of God. From the judgment of God. Always remember that as you think about your salvation. I've been saved from sin, yes. I've been saved from the power of the evil one, yes. Death has no hold on me. Though I die, yet shall I live, yes. But all of those things flow from this thing. You have been saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the judgment of God. God, through Christ, has saved us from his justice. He has saved us from his judgment. He has saved us from his own wrath. It has been accomplished. Most surely. Most certainly. And we should have certainty concerning the things that we are taught in the Gospel of Luke. So as we work our way forward through this Gospel over coming weeks, the Lord willing, months, possibly even years, that's the way that we're going. We're going to see how it is that God has accomplished this thing among us. We're going to see the expense account of our salvation. The expense account. Someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay. Have you ever had anyone object? You say, if a person puts their faith in Jesus, seeking the forgiveness of sins and repents, it's all finished and done. No works, nothing. They're forgiven. Yeah, I say that. Even a murderer. Yes, I say that. But that can't be right. Yes, it can. Why? Because Christ on our behalf has paid the price. That expense that had to be paid, it has been paid. And if a person does do any works, they do them because it is God who works in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. We don't pay, but we don't pay God back. The idea is foolishness. What can you give him that he doesn't already have? What does he need from you or I? What can we offer him? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is God who gives. God gives. He gives at his own expense, and yet he loses nothing as he gives. That's God. Infinite, merciful, showing steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. Praise God for the Gospels. Praise God for the Gospel of Luke. As we come now to close in prayer, let's pray that we will grow in certainty concerning the things that we are taught. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, there is much more that could have been said. Yet, Father, we pray that in coming weeks and months and even years, if it be your will, as we study this gospel, we pray, Father, that you would bless the words to us. We pray, Father, that we would be built up and made strong in faith, that we would be be made more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength and help us to love our neighbour as ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.